Hey everyone, this is Evan Brand back with another episode of the Not Just Paleo podcast. If you are new to this show, please head over to notjustpaleo.com in the sidebar or at the bottom of the page you will see a option to fill out the newsletter. When you do that, you're going to get a free quick start guide and it's going to give you some information on how you can sleep better, think better, and eat better. So if you're new to the paleo diet or if you're just someone who has an interest in health, uh, maybe you're someone who lays in bed at night just pondering things and you can't seem to get to sleep, um, in that quick start guide, you're going to get some information on how you can improve that. But now let's get into today's episode. We have Brad Burge, and he's the Director of Communications and Marketing for MAPS.org. Now MAPS uh, stands for a handful of words that I'm going to try to pronounce here without stuttering. It is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and this was an organization founded in 1986 by Dr. Rick Doblin. He is the founder of this who has been studying the use of natural substances in treating PTSD, depression, um, easing pain, cancer research, all different types of stuff. Uh, They actually had a conference in Oakland, California called Psychedelic Science 2013 where um, if you go to maps.org forward slash conference, you can see the list of topics here. It's pretty amazing. There was over 100 of the world's leading researchers talking about using these natural substances to treat people with all different types of traumatic injuries, uh, with the brain, addiction, etc., etc. Long story short, I found maps through an Oprah Winfrey magazine, so it's pretty funny. Uh, There was an article titled, Can a Single Pill Change Your Life? And it was about a girl named Sarah. She suffered PTSD for 20 years as a result of severe childhood trauma. And we look into, uh, she was actually a patient at MAPS. And they were using MDMA, um, which on the street is known as ecstasy, as uh, an assisted psychotherapy for her PTSD. And so it's a very good article. I will put the link up to that in the show notes but you can read about her story and how she's healed herself. Um, So this is very interesting stuff. They're trying to reach the mainstream with this. There's some studies that are getting out from Yale and Harvard University about using treatments like this. And since we had the episode with Beverly Meyer on psychedelics, I had other people emailing me saying, can you please find someone to give us more information about this? So that's exactly what I did. Uh, If you have topics you'd like to have featured on the show, it may take a couple months to get them on, but uh, I will definitely put it in the loop. So you can email me at evan, E-V-A-N, at notjustpaleo.com, and I will reply to you and let you know if and when I can get your topic featured. So thanks again to the people who sent emails again last week. I promise I do have them saved into a massive file now. I do appreciate you listening to the Not Just Paleo podcast, and I hope you enjoy. And I'm going to let him introduce himself and then tell us about this whole project. And it's literally changing lives around the world. So, uh, Brad, welcome to the show first. Uh, Thanks, Evan. Uh, That was a great introduction. Thanks. Uh, That's certainly what we're hoping to do, change lives. Um, uh, Yeah, as you mentioned, my name is Brad Burge. Uh, I am the Director of Communications for MAPS, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. 
Uh, we're a, a nonprofit, uh, a nonprofit research and educational organization that's based out in California. Uh, we're uh, uh, located in Santa Cruz. That's where our headquarters are. Um, and uh, for the last 26 years, MAPS has been working to create safe contexts for the safe and beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana. Um, we were founded in 1986 as a direct response to the war on drugs, um, specifically the criminalization of MDMA, which is the uh, um, pure form of what's become known as ecstasy or molly on the street. Um, when that was criminalized, legitimate research into its therapeutic applications, uh, which had been happening for quite some time, uh, was shut down. Uh, and so MAPS was founded to bring um, legitimate, controlled uh, research into the beneficial uses of psychedelics back into the mainstream and to open up possibilities for that. So it's not really just only medical uses that we're looking at. We're also hoping that looking at the medical uses and the scientific uses of, of psychedelics, um, so how they can help us heal and how they can help us figure out what's going on in our brains and bodies, but also the spiritual and creative uses of psychedelics. Um, there's a long history, thousands of years actually, of people using psychedelics uh, in um, ritual ceremonies uh, in uh, traditional cultures, as well as in North America. Um, uh, and so we're, we're, we're hoping to create ways that people can legally and safely, uh, beneficially use those tools. Um, and, um, we're making excellent progress. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. And I know that a lot of people don't like to talk about psychedelics and it's kind of, um, disheartening because if we look back at human roots and just where we came from, I mean, one of the most uh, popular theories that I believe about evolution is the stoned ape theory. Um, could you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, this idea, uh, of the, as you call it, the stoned ape theory, the idea that, uh, at one point, uh, human, human beings, homo sapiens, or the previous version was wandering around, uh, and stumbled upon a psychoactive substance like a plant, um, or a mushroom, uh, something like that, and it precipitated a, a profound change in awareness that uh, uh, led to uh, such things as the development of language or the development of tool use, uh, and so on. I think that's an interesting theory. Um, I, I don't. I don't think it's supported by actual um, uh, um, concrete scientific evidence. I think there's a lot of um, connections that can be made there. Um, however, I, I think what, what, what's more interesting really is how that insight applies to right now um, and how it, how it shows that what we're looking for is tools of evolution. And we're fascinated and thrilled when we find tools that can uh, prompt new levels of awareness or new ways of perceiving the world that can help us overcome some of the more practical difficulties of living in the modern world. Um, uh, so, so we're at a point in human history now, um, just like apes might have been um, uh, many hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, um, where, where we're at a conflict between ourselves, our minds and bodies, and the outside world. Uh, we, have, we have massive industries and economies and wars around the world that are tearing this planet down and that are bringing us to a place where... Um, uh, um, human life uh, is is n not looking as sustainable as we would like it to be. 
Uh, and so we have these tools that have been available for thousands and thousands of years uh, and only recently criminalized in the West um, that, that there's a long history of, of them being used for causing or providing access to different ways of perceiving the world. Uh, and, and, and by doing that, by reestablishing ourselves and, and establishing a new relationship between ourselves, our bodies, and the environment in which we live, something that psychedelics can and have helped people do, um, uh, we, can, we can change how we're living on this planet and make it more sustainable for ourselves and for future generations. Uh, so I think this idea that, that psychedelics can uh, help, help precipitate a pr- profound change in awareness leading to uh, an evolutionary leap of sorts, uh, I think it's a really, really powerful uh, idea. And the key there being that um, they have to be used in particular ways and they have to be used carefully and responsibly. Uh, in order to uh, help produce these beneficial changes in awareness. Uh, so I think, again, we're at this place uh, in, in history and culture where we're moving forward and reestablishing our relationships and psychedelics may be able to help us do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we look at how long that these plants have existed. I mean, arguably, um, and actually, no, I think it's fact for sure that plants existed on this planet before human life or any sort of mammalian life would actually come into existence. So to um, to point out how soon all of these things were criminalized. I mean, are we talking just from the 1960s era and the drug war then? Uh, is that when all this started? Well, with with psychedelics, um, it wasn't until the 1950s, really, uh, when they entered the awareness of Western culture. That is North America and Europe. Um, uh, it, it was when Gordon Wasson uh, and other anthropologists traveling through uh, Central and South America uh, discovered psilocybin mushrooms and uh, uh, um, psychoactive cacti um, like peyote, mescaline, um, that, that, that uh, large numbers of people in the West uh, first became familiar with them. So it was really only since the 60s. Uh, that, that psychedelics in particular have been criminalized. But the history of prohibition itself, the, uh, the history of prohibition of substances and the criminalization of, uh, of states of mind uh, facilitated by psychoactive substances uh, has a history that goes back to the late 19th century, and it relates uh, to opium and alcohol. Yeah, I mean the, the key thing you said there that stood out to me, Brad, was the fact that it's been made a criminal offense to put yourself into a certain mind state. Right. I mean, literally. Right. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. And the interesting thing is that uh, it's it's not the use of drugs that our culture is opposed to, obviously. Uh, our, culture, our culture encourages to a huge extent and markets drugs and we are encouraged to take drugs and use drugs not just alcohol and nicotine but prescription medicines uh, uh, painkillers mood stabilizers antipsychotics um, all manner of substances that we're encouraged and told that we need in, in order to be healthy um, so it's really just particular drugs and particular kinds of states of mind that have been criminalized uh, over the last hundred years or so uh, and I, I think that's 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 really an interesting point because you know what are these states of mind um, that are being criminalized and what is it that they're threatening such that they're being excluded? Yeah, I mean, is there a deeper like conspiratorial 
part of this. I mean, it, it almost seems like, well, I mean, let's look at a scenario now. You see a Walgreens, and then you see a truck move up, and then you see the pharmaceutical reps or whoever it is. They come off of the semi-truck with thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, pills all deriving from opium and, you know, the Oxycontins and just all the mass-abused pills. I mean, there's actually that uh, documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's called The Oxycontin Express. Mm, I haven't uh, seen it. Okay, it's a documentary on YouTube that everyone should check out, and it basically just shows the trade of pharmaceuticals from from Florida and all of the different pain cl- clinics, and actually Kentucky, Virginia, and just all kind of states here in the Midwest are so affected, and it literally kind of ruins small towns because of yeah. uh, just the prescription drug um, overuse, and then... But that's perfectly accepted, and the guy in the white coat at the doctor's office will willingly provide you with all of these very dangerous and addicting substances. Um, so I guess we should probably talk about some of the recent studies that are going on as far as like treating post-traumatic stress syndrome um, and just all the different things that these psychedelics do have and then the associated side effects with them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in what you said about the pharmaceutical industry reps and that story of the truck pulling up to the Walgreens and, uh, you know, really the, the key difference between um, these major for-profit pharmaceutical companies that are pushing these drugs and the uh, underground, massive, sprawling criminal organizations that fund uh, um, wars uh, in Central and South America, including Mexico and the southern United States is that the pharmaceutical companies have lobbyists in Congress. Um, they're, they're, They're both pushing drugs. They're both invested in a culture that encourages us to take drugs. Uh, and they're both making billions, if not trillions of dollars from the sale of these drugs. So part of what MAPS is working towards and the larger field of psychedelic uh, researchers are working towards is 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 finding ways to combat that exact thing, um, to combat this reliance we have on prescription drugs. Now it's 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 interesting, um, and you might even think ironic that we would be working in a in a pharmaceutical model, working with the FDA uh, and other government regulatory agencies in a mainstream pharmaceutical development context with psychedelics um, to combat uh, that very system. Um, but in fact, that's exactly exactly what we're doing. Um, so our, our, our lead study right now, our, our lead program of research is using MDMA. Uh, that's the pure form of uh, what's known on the street as ecstasy, uh, uh, it, combined with psychotherapy to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, our current study right now, using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, uh, is in veterans. That's taking place in South Carolina and um the subjects enrolled in that study are, are all veterans uh, or firefighters uh, or police officers with service-related PTSD. Wow. And the way the therapy works, what we're exploring is, is, uh, is a form of psychotherapy that's facilitated and enhanced by the use of a psychedelic. Um, so the way the therapy works is there are a couple of introductory psychotherapy sessions where the subject comes in and speaks with the therapists uh, and becomes familiar with them. Then there is a single uh, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session, which is an eight-hour session where the subject takes uh, MDMA one time 
with a follow-up dose just to extend the, the effects, uh, and then has a psychotherapy session where they're talking with the therapists uh, about their trauma. Uh, then there's a couple of more standard psychotherapy sessions and then one more psychotherapy session with MDMA. And that's, and, and that's it. Um, th- th- then you have a couple of follow-up psychotherapy sessions. So as you can see, this whole treatment program is primarily standard psychotherapy. Uh, it's most, mostly psychotherapy sessions, talking with a subject about their trauma and their relationship with it and how it affects their lives. Uh, and with only two sessions with MDMA. And what we found in our previous study is that after just two sessions of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy combined with other psychotherapy sessions without MDMA, uh, that 83% of the subjects uh, who received MDMA-assisted psychotherapy no longer qualified for PTSD after treatment. And we also found that those results lasted almost four years later. So it wasn't just some sort of psychedelic afterglow where these people were just feeling good. Um, and then um, it went back to how they were before. But these were lasting results after just two sessions. So here we are working in a pharmaceutical model where we're trying to get prescription approval for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Uh, but people are only getting the treatment twice. Um, so this is not the standard model that these major pharmaceutical companies are looking for. They're looking for drugs that you have to take for the rest of your life. Um, that, in our view, is not a cure. But when we have just two sessions, that's you take the drug twice, not every day for the rest of your life, but twice, and you get lasting, uh, durable improvements in PTSD symptoms. And keeping in mind, these subjects in this study had had, had PTSD for an average of 19 years. And uh, in, in this earlier study, they were they were primarily female survivors of sexual assault and abuse, um, and that's almost two decades that they'd suffered from PTSD. And after just two MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions, uh, they recovered. Um, and that's really really powerful and flies in the face of this standard model where we have to take a drug every day uh, for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that's incredible. I haven't thought of the fact of money. I mean, it always does go back to money. It's kind of ridiculous. The, uh, the process behind these antidepressants that are out there too because, I mean, the suicide rates that are associated with all these mental disorders including uh, PTSD, I mean, it's – we need answers and we need them now is, is kind of my feeling of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's just an epidemic of people coming back from wars abroad um, uh, with, with, with PTSD. Uh, more people have committed suicide as, as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan as have um, – then have died in combat. Um, and, um, that means that there's something really, really wrong here. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, another, an, another part of our, 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 work, you know, that also points to this, um, you know, using drugs in a sense to get off drugs, um, is, um, uh, is our work into using Ibogaine. Um, Ibogaine, uh, is a, um, is a naturally occurring, alkaloid uh, that, uh, that occurs in the root bark of a South African plant um, called the iboga plant. Uh, and it's traditionally been used in uh, Bwiti religious ceremonies in Africa. Um, and uh, a lot of anecdotal reports from people uh, who have used ibogaine uh, in, um, uh, in, in clinics around the world where it's legal 
um, that does not include the United States. Um, yeah, where are those locations, Brad? Uh, there are Ibogaine clinics in Mexico, um, uh, also in New Zealand, um, other places around the world. We've just uh, um, we're doing a research program right now. Um, that's uh, an observational research program where we're looking at what happens to people who come into ibogaine clinics with serious addictions to alcohol or opiates, uh, primarily opiates, um, in an attempt to uh, escape that addiction. Uh, and uh, reports are showing that uh, ibogaine can be a powerful uh, addiction interrupter, uh, where people can come in with serious addictions to opiates and with a combination of ingesting ibogaine and careful, uh, careful attention to their body, which means nutrition, diet, exercise, body work, um, all of these things to get their mind and their body into alignment, um, facilitated by ibogaine, that people can, can stop their addictions. They can often walk away from an opiate addiction with minimal or no withdrawal. Uh, after having used Ibogaine in combination with these other body practices. Um, the key there being that um, it's not a solution to addiction, but what it can do is provide people with a perspective that enables them to change their habits and change their patterns uh, away from their addiction. What we've also seen is that if people do not change their, uh, their lifestyle, uh, adjust their relationships where they live, uh, uh, change their routine, change their habits, that often people will go back into an addiction even after being free of it for several months or longer. Uh, so what, what we're seeing is that through this profound change in awareness, Ibogaine is a very, very powerful psychedelic and is not used recreationally. Uh, it is not a fun experience. It can last 24 or 36 hours or longer um, and can be very intense and very difficult. Um, but for somebody who's on the edge of death as a result of serious opiate addiction, um, it's not usually seen as such a bad deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there, there's also a risk. Um, uh, we're seeing there have been uh, several deaths uh, associated with Ibogaine um, in these clinics. So it's very, very important that people do the research carefully um, if they're going to seek out these clinics um, and, um, and, and, and pay attention to uh, reports on safety um, because um, certain people with, 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 with heart conditions or other neurological issues, we're not sure exactly what the mechanism is, um, but there does seem to be a high risk um, associated with ibogaine use, so it really is um, a last-ditch effort. But, but the idea that a a, a powerful change of perspective, uh, perspective facilitated by a psychedelic, can help people overcome reliance on other drugs, really separates, in a sense, psychedelics from these other drugs that are seen as drugs of abuse. Um, and we can actually use these drugs and these these shifts in awareness to. Um, to, to reduce our reliance on these other drugs that the pharmaceutical industry pushes um, and, the, and, and other drugs that are available on the street. Yeah, well, I think it's important to mention that this stuff has been going on, going on around the world and is actually going on internationally as we speak right now. So right. For, for, you know, for the U.S. listeners, this is not something that – I mean it does seem 
Uh, I mean, it is very cutting edge, but it, it might seem controversial to people here. But internationally, I mean, there, you know, um, could you talk about the stuff like in South America, for example? And I think maybe even some places in the U.S., a certain type of Native American religion, uh, they got permission from the government to actually use, um, I don't know what plant or what it was for their religious ceremonies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're talking about the Native American church. Okay. Um, the uh, Native American Church is a um, Native American religious uh, organization um, that uh, uses peyote, uh, which is a cactus that grows naturally in North America, um, that, that they have been using um, in traditional religious ceremonies um, for uh, as long as um, – well, as, as, as long as they've been recording their history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they recently uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and um, got uh, special uh, permission to use peyote. Um, it's a, a um, uh, again, it's a cactus that contains uh, the, the compound mescaline, which is a psychedelic, um, in, their, in their religious practices. Um, so through... Uh, this this notion of religious freedom and the idea that um, these um, perspectives, these modes of awareness um, induced by uh, the ingestion of peyote is a fundamental part of their religious practice that legitimized it in the eyes of the Supreme Court. Uh, so there's this movement uh, really within the U.S. and within the federal government to, to, to create ways um, uh, for, for people to, uh, fully embrace their, their human rights to, um, uh, to experience religion, um, in, in the way that their culture provides. Um, so there really is this move to legitimacy. It is, it is happening all over the world. Uh, we recently had a conference where almost 2,000 people showed up to Oakland to talk openly about uh, about the use of psychedelics for beneficial purposes. Oakland is uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, a major a major conference with international leaders uh, from Johns Hopkins University and NYU, um, independent researchers funded by MAPS, um, other organizations, the Hefter Research Institute, the UK-based Beckley Foundation, the Council on Spiritual Practices. There's uh, a growing number of, of strong organizations that are moving this research forward. Uh, we have permission from the FDA uh, to, to conduct the research. Uh, our, our researchers have licenses from the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, to to uh, um, use the substances in, in clinical research settings. Uh, so there's uh, really a lot more, um, a lot more attention um, and legitimacy happening surrounding psychedelic research right now. Uh, my boss, our executive director who founded MAPS uh, in uh, 1986, uh, Rick Doblin, um, was a PhD from Harvard in public policy, uh, just recently had a meeting uh, at the Pentagon with a number of high-level military officials talking about um, the possibility of obtaining uh, support um, from uh, the Departments of Defense for a study looking at treating veterans with PTSD with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So there's a lot of indications uh, that um, uh, these, this research, this, these forms of treatment are moving back into the mainstream. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. I mean, I, I looked up this conference here, so it was actually like about a month ago today, so that's pretty cool. 
Yeah. And now this is uh, an international conference that's going to be hosted every year. Is that right? Uh, I, I, I wish it was. Oh, really? uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, we're uh, we're at a point now where we're really, really expanding our research program. So we're having to devote uh, as many resources to it as possible. Um, we have new studies looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy uh, starting in Canada, in Boulder, Colorado, in uh, Israel, um, and other places around the world. Um, so we want to devote our resources to that and really get these treatments moving forward as best as possible. Um, we're hoping to have another conference like that here in the U.S. probably in six or seven years. We might have a smaller one in between. Um, there will be another major uh, conference coming soon um, that is in the next uh, two or three, possibly four years in, in Europe. Um, so we're going to let the field have a chance to expand uh, and um, uh, in the meantime, focus on the research and focus on the changes needed to um, uh, legitimize the careful uses of these compounds. Yeah, I absolutely think it's going to keep going. I mean, just looking here at the list of conference topics here, I mean, every single person on this list with all these different topics of just healing the the mind and the body, I mean, every single one of these people on this list has a a medical doctor or a PhD next to their name. That's right. And these are all, uh, I mean, th- this is high-tech stuff right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly how I see it, too. Um, I see uh, psychedelics uh, as as a tool, as a very, very powerful tool, a power tool, if you will, uh, that, um, that can be used responsibly and it can be used carelessly. Uh, and we need policies and procedures uh, and attitudes that can help us use them safely. Right. Yeah, the, the other one that's big along with MDMA is psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, there's probably a hundred links just on this page. I'll have to put a link up in the show notes, but talking about uh, using psilocybin for the treatment of smoking addictions and all sort of other just kind of like neurological uh, problems. I mean, we, we talked on the podcast a couple episodes about neurotransmitters mm-hmm. and um, – I'd be surprised to hear uh, what all you know about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, psilocybin is a really exciting one um, uh, uh, in, in terms of the research and the possible therapy um, and scientific applications. Um, partly that's because it's, it's naturally occurring. Um, uh, many millions of people in the U.S. have, have used psilocybin uh, on their own. Uh, and now, finally, um, there's enough acceptance uh, in the scientific and academic um, community uh, of of psychedelic research, that there's been a lot of interesting research looking at psilocybin, um, uh, uh, its effects on the brain, as well as its possible therapeutic applications. Um, our colleagues um, at uh, Johns Hopkins University, led by uh, Roland Griffiths, um, who is a researcher there, um, supported by the Hefter Research Institute, um, Recently completed, a, uh, recently completed a series of studies looking at uh, psilocybin uh, and its role in facilitating mystical or spiritual experiences and how those experiences can lead to lasting positive changes in personality down the road. Um, that's just one way um, that psilocybin has been looked at. Um, an, another way that I think is fascinating is some recent uh, brain imaging work uh, funded by the Beckley Foundation, which is a UK-based uh, policy and research organization also looking at the beneficial uses of psychedelics and cannabis, uh, that found that psilocybin 
can reduce uh, can reduce um, the activation in certain areas of the brain. And that kind of flies in the face of how we commonly think about psychedelics as, as, as activating or adding something extra in the brain, um, or, you know, especially in terms of hallucinations. It seems like something extra is there. When in fact, what's happening with psilocybin is that it's reducing activation in certain areas of the brain related to cognition and perception. So it's actually helping us slow down in a sense. It's actually reducing how subjects... Um, uh, how subjects perceive themselves. Um, it's, 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 it's simplifying, in a sense, uh, the thought processes that are happening. So um, that's, a, that's a really interesting and new and cutting-edge piece of research that's happening and drawing a lot of attention to it. Um, uh, psilocybin, like LSD, works primarily on the serotonin receptor uh, in the brain, um, and, and that's something that most psychedelics uh, share. Right, and I mean this—the same thing with prescription drugs. That's the—it seems to be the hot word now, especially in the the mainstream television industry and stuff—is uh, serotonin and mm-hmm. how that's supposedly the end all, uh, the end all cure, and that these one little white pills or whatever it is that your doctor can prescribe you will be the the trigger to uh, to change that. But that's simply not true. With all these different, then you have a commercial that comes out next year and says, you know, we're sorry for. Uh, whatever happened to a family member that was using this specific uh, doctor-recommended drug. I mean, I think that people are starting to open up to new alternatives. I mean, the healthcare system now just seems to be a complete failure, and it, it seems to be focused on, like you said, having someone on something for life or a form of treatment for life rather than just doing mm-hmm. a small uh, change that can actually have lifetime benefit. So it's interesting how I think things are shifting. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I was uh, recently, uh, just last year, um, late last year, uh, in 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 November. Um, I think that was recently. Um, I was at the San Diego Psychiatric and Mental Health Congress. I was representing MAPS and um, sharing information with psychiatrists there uh, about research into treating PTSD with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Um, this was in San Diego, California, which is a major uh, military base. There's a huge number of military bases there. Um, and so a lot of psychiatrists who worked with the Veterans Administration um, and um, uh, who worked with branches of the military um, uh, who, who commonly saw PTSD patients in their practice. And uh, there at this convention, you know, here was MAPS, you know, which is a nonprofit pharmaceutical company in one sense, you know, in addition to our cultural work um, and, um, you know, look into the spiritual uses and the creative uses um, of, of psychedelics. You know, in, in one sense, we're a pharmaceutical company, but we're a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, which um, seems like a contradiction in terms because we're so used to pharmaceutical companies being out for the buck. Um, and so when I was there standing behind this table talking about this research that's really looking for a cure rather than just prolonged symptom relief or just keeping people on drugs for the rest of their lives. By and large, treatment providers, therapists and psychiatrists, physicians were intrigued and they wanted to know, based on the results that I explained earlier, um, uh, um, you know, when they could use MDMA in their practice. There's such a need uh, for better treatments, treatments that work, um, and such a frustration on the part of psychiatrists with the pharmaceutical companies. Um, that are really failing us in a lot of ways. 
um, that that they're ready for something new. And uh, I, I think I think psychedelic research can can bring something new to medical practice in that way. Yeah, I mean it's going to have to happen now because. I don't know what the number is of people that we have still in war right now, but I mean, there's more coming in, going every single day. And I mean, it's just further reducing the mental health of our, our entire society. Literally. I mean, the planet is kind of, kind of in need of, of some sort of change with our mindset. I mean, things that they, to me, uh, just from a third eye perspective, they seem to be, uh, spiraling in the wrong direction just with the combination of the way people are thinking and, and treating their mind and body. Um, I do think this is a, a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, part of, part of what, um, psychedelics can do is, is help change that perspective that people have about the relationship between their mind and their body. Um, you know, as a, as a culture globally, there is a disjuncture between our global mind and our global body. Um, our global mind being our culture and our global body being the environment and the planet. Um, we, we have these ideas of how we want to live our lives. Um, we want to buy a lot of things. We want to, uh, we want to run our cars. Uh, we want to, um, you know, sit inside, uh, at our workstations. Um, we want to, um, produce more and make more, um, and that is at odds with what our global body needs, what the planet needs, what the environment needs. And that's becoming increasingly clear as a result, unfortunately, of increasing catastrophes. Um, and it's unfortunate that as we continue down this path, we're just going to be seeing more and more of them. Um, and climate change is just, is just one of those. Uh, so... Uh, you know, as a, as a smaller example, bringing it back to the level of the individual, uh, people who uh, undergo Ibogaine therapy for drug addiction, um, and that's addiction to opiates, um, addiction to prescription anxiety medicines, uh, addiction to alcohol, addiction to tobacco, uh, they are uh, often um, and always at the best Ibogaine clinics. Um, encouraged to have a strict diet before their therapy, um, and that diet um, is 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 a more natural diet. Um, it's um, it's also encouraged that um, they do exercise and they get off other drugs. So part of the effectiveness and part of the potential way that psychedelic treatments can help is by uh, encouraging people to make these other changes in their lives these other changes in their relationship with their body and uh, how healthy they are, um, how much attention they pay to their body. And so if this small perspective, just at the level of the individual, uh, um, uh, where the individual is encouraged to connect their mind and their body and to bring them into alignment um, using diet and exercise and the careful use of psychedelics, uh, then we can understand how, at a broader level, the integration of psychedelics in careful ways into our medical uh, and um, cultural system can help us heal our, our broader global relationship between our global mind, our culture, and our global body, the environment. So bringing culture and environment together is something that psychedelics, used carefully, used responsibly, um, can help do. Yeah, someone who might just be listening from the fitness and nutrition uh, 
perspective. You know, a lot of listeners are focused on health and wellness in general, so maybe they're they're listening to this and looking at it from a third eye perspective. Uh, it is refreshing to hear that the studies do incorporate exercise and diet because, uh, I mean, that proves time and time again you got to put healthy in to get healthy out. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, yeah, um, I wanted to get a little bit more info as far as the workshops. I saw there was a bunch of workshops here that people uh, that are listening may be interested in checking out. Is there any more that are coming up this year? Uh, Yeah, we had some all-day workshops happening at Psychedelic Science 2013 last month. Um, They were uh, in-depth ways uh, for people to meet researchers and uh, learn about really the nitty-gritty of the research, um, the treatment methodology, how it works looking at MDMA, uh, looking at psychedelic neuroscience, uh, and, um, and other new and interesting aspects of psychedelic research. <clears throat> um, we don't have any more coming up uh, soon. We don't have any planned, um, but we do have a number of events around the country and around the world listed on our website at maps.org on our events calendar, which is um, a great resource. Uh, and then also all of those workshop videos, um, or most of them, as well as all of the videos from the recent conference are now being posted online. Um, they're currently available on the MAPS YouTube channel, which you can access at maps.org. Uh, and um, they'll also be available at psychedelicscience.org in the next week or so. So people will still be able to tune in and um, catch all of those lectures and uh, learn about everything the field of psychedelic research has to offer. Great. Okay, yeah, I'm looking here, Brad, at the um, the workshops list. It's pretty cool. It's showing that the the doctors and the the researchers and authors associated with all this are actually coming, and they're the ones doing the talking. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the, one of the greatest things about the field of psychedelic research is that people are personally committed. Um, people are really, really excited about it. Um, partly, uh, partly because psychedelics are just so interesting scientifically and medically and culturally. Um, you know, and, and partly because the field itself is just so cutting edge. Um, it's just um, really exciting to be pushing the boundaries in terms of science and medicine and health. Um, and uh, psychedelic research is, is, is really where that's at. And so, um, you know, anybody who wants to get involved or to learn more, um, there's always somebody who's eager to share and eager to teach. Um, there's so many ways to connect up by volunteering. Um, donations, of course, is a huge way that people can help uh, move our research forward since we don't have support from the pharmaceutical company and we don't have support um, from uh, the federal government yet and we don't have support from major foundations yet. So, so far, it really relies on individuals providing their time, their energy, uh, and their financial resources to uh, help us move this forward. Right, yeah, not to uh, to get too off topic, but to mention... One of the biggest companies, GlaxoSmithKline, uh-huh. uh, their profit, I, I'm not sure. I think it might have been a quarterly profit for 2011. That was the latest stat that I found was $9 billion profit. Oof. So, Oof. I mean, $9 billion. You look at that and then you look at the amount of people that are still sick, uh, whether that's mentally or physically, and then you wonder what the heck went wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think a whole lot went wrong. Well, you know, we're, we're (laughs) 9 billion is an interesting number because in order to make MDMA assisted psychotherapy, a legal, legally available prescription medicine, all we need to complete all of the research is about $12 million. Now, $12 million to one person might seem like a lot, but when you're talking about $9 billion in profits from just GlaxoSmithKline, um, 
less than 1%, I think maybe a tenth of 1% uh, of that would uh, be enough to move MDMA all the way through this process, opening up the door for further psychedelic research into LSD and psilocybin, ibogaine, and other things. Um, so it's really not a whole lot we need. Um, so it's really possible that we can do this. Yeah. Okay. So what are we hoping for the future? Let's do a, say a five and 10 year scope of this thing. And where do you, where do we hope that this is going to be? Uh, well, we, we hope in five years that we'll be, uh, halfway through, uh, phase three. That's the last phase, the major phase of our research program, looking at treating PTSD with MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Um, there's also an indication that psilocybin research, brain imaging research in particular, um, supported by our colleagues at Beckley Foundation and the Hefter Research Institute, um, you know, in addition to those uh, supported by MAPS, um, will also be taking off. So there's going to be a lot more basic research looking at the neuroscience, the basic pharmacology, and the basic health effects uh, of uh, psychedelics um, uh, over the next five or so years. In the next 10 years, by then, we may actually have been able to, if we've been able to get the funding and if we continue to get these great results, uh, make MDMA-assisted psychotherapy a legally available prescription medicine. That could easily happen in the next 10 years. Um, and then by then, uh, we'll also have seen uh, probably uh, a lot more support from major research institutes, hopefully from the military, uh, hopefully from the federal government um, and other private foundations, um, because certainly the need is going to increase uh, for new treatments that are alternatives to these mainstream pharmaceutical treatments. Um, and um, also, as the evidence continues to come in, um, people will just be more comfortable talking about psychedelic research in a practical way. We're moving away from this um, perspective on psychedelics that they can only be used um, harmfully, that they can only be abused. And now we're finding that there are contexts, religious contexts, scientific contexts, therapeutic contexts, uh, where they can and have been and are being used uh, responsibly with beneficial effects. Awesome. Well, I think that's, uh, that's about all the questions I have for you. But if you had anything else to leave us with, please do. Well, yeah, I and mean, you know, I just want to say thanks so much for having me on here. This has been a great, a great conversation. Um, uh, there's been a lot of uh, media interest. Um, I've been having a lot of conversations with members of the press, documentary filmmakers, and others about this research. Uh, and uh, many times they ask the same questions. And I think it's really, it's really great to be having this conversation with you uh, and with your listeners um, about um, this this very, very particular area. Uh, where um, where psychedelic research has the opportunity to really um, provide a lot of benefits, and that's in the area of health and wellness and um, mindful connections uh, between our our minds and our bodies. So uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I mean, it was just a – it was almost like a common sense thing for me. It was almost like a no-brainer when you look at what <laughs> you're actually using and what the results are showing versus – what everyone else is using and what the results are showing. I mean, it, it's a no-brainer to consider this stuff and to start doing research on this stuff now for anyone that doesn't even think they have a problem with their mind or body and they, they're just trying to maybe improve the, the outlook on their life. I mean, the research is out there if you, if you do so need it. So that's great. Yep, yep, that's right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brad, and uh, we'll keep in touch and we hope this thing continues to develop and Hopefully, maybe next year or the year after that when we have uh, 
big new results to talk about. We'll have you back on the show. Great. I would, I would love it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Okay. Thank you, Evan. He acts like it's all good, yeah, like everything's cool. Kiss a girl and I never please her. She doesn't have a clue that he's terrible clues. Why I'm in a tie, I gotta watch out, girl. Don't wanna see her by her eyes out, girl. Cause I've been watching, you've been hurt.